Now open, let us open our Bibles in Exodus 1. We will read from verse 8, 8 through 14. It is our text of the day. And after the sermon, we will sing Psalm 124 as a song of response. Exodus 1, I will read from verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Word of the Lord. Dear congregation of the Lord, which is the most tyrannical regime that you know? The most tyrannical regime that you have known in, in history? I'm sure some of you might answer Nazi Germany, others the Soviet Union, and still others the Chinese Communist Party. Yes, all those regimes have killed or caused the death of tens of thousands and even of millions, tens of millions of people. But did you think about the Egypt of the Exodus? That Egypt was at least as wicked as many modern genocidal regimes. The pharaoh of that time embarked on a project of extermination of the church. If it had succeeded, the plan would have sealed the doom of the entire human race from that generation forward. Why? Because the messianic line would have been destroyed and the Christ would have not come. Fortunately, our heavenly father came to his people's rescue. He used the genocidal plans of Pharaoh to bless the church. My assignment today is to proclaim the gospel of the triune God from this spirit-inspired historical account of how God blessed his people through persecution in Egypt. The theme summarizing this gospel proclamation is this, 
Yahweh uses persecution to bless the church in Egypt. Yahweh uses persecution to bless the church in Egypt. Under this theme, we will see three points. First, the origin of the persecution, then the intensity of the persecution, and finally, God's blessing through the persecution. The origin of the persecution, the intensity, and God's blessing through the persecution. The origin of the persecution, our first point. Our text starts with a now, which marked a new section in the history of God's people. A new era was starting. Changes were going to happen. Here, the change was, unfortunately, for the worse. We read that the new king did not know Joseph. What does it mean? It does not mean that the new king did not have, any, did not have an intellectual knowledge of Joseph the Great. Why was Joseph so great? Because he was a savior of Egypt, who gave so much power and prestige to the office of Pharaoh when he saved Egypt from famine. No, this king did not want to acknowledge the blessings that God had brought to Egypt through Joseph. Whereas the previous administrations had treated the Israelites hospitably because of Joseph, the new king had a wicked eye toward Joseph and his people. The new pharaoh was ungrateful. He was not only ungrateful, he was also anxious. But why was he anxious? Because the Israelites' population growth was miraculous. In Genesis, some other neighbors of the patriarchs tried to join them, to become one people with them to share in their blessings when they saw that they were becoming powerful. But this Pharaoh wanted none of that mixing. He had another more cunning and wicked plan. He wanted to control the Israelite population. He wanted to exploit them at low cost. Just like today, you can know that people of God at that time were very dynamic and productive. Most probably, just like today, they were an important part of the Egyptian economy. So Pharaoh lusted after their wealth and productivity, but he hated them. He wanted to have a cheap labor force which could never rebel. So the plan that he found was to enslave them. But how did he realize his plan? So according to our text, you can imagine Pharaoh seated with his advisors and some of his underlings saying, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. In Hebrew, the way Pharaoh refers to the Israelites is already sadly pejorative. He could have said the sons of Israel, but he said the people of the sons of Israel. In nowadays, it could be translated something like 
those Gentiles, those foreigners, they are going too fast. We must do something about it. In verse 10, Pharaoh gives his plan of action. Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with these foreigners. He's very cunning, so he does not speak explicitly about his intentions. But everyone in the room understands what Pharaoh means when he says, Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. His advisors understand that he means, See, guys, this is a lifetime opportunity. These foreigners, they are going too fast. So if we do not do anything about it, they may soon take our place. But we can do something. We can exploit them and become ourselves very much more powerful while at the same time decreasing the population. What do you think about that? And you can imagine all the greedy and lustful hearts in the, in the room nodding, saying, yes, that's a great plan. Let us do it. But there is much irony to this account of Pharaoh's schemes. First, Pharaoh fears that if the Israelites become powerful enough, they will seek to leave Egypt. If they leave, they will cause Egypt to lose a good part of its productivity and wealth. But he does not realize that making life hard for them is what will crystallize the desire to leave the land. He does not realize that his schemings will prompt the Heavenly Father to intervene to set them free. Pharaoh means it for evil, but God means it for good. Just like Pharaoh, the devil and his allies, the system of this world and our flesh, they seek to tyrannize us through sins, temptations, and sufferings. The goal of that tyranny is to compel us to abandon God. But why they mean to destroy us through temptations, God means to save through testing. So you may be going through a great suffering, through great temptations currently, but know with great certitude that our Heavenly Father is working through those difficulties to confirm your faith and to make you yearn more for Christ's return. Another irony is that when Pharaoh bent his mind to think about what is good for Egypt, he thought about destroying God's people. But in Genesis, when Joseph bent his mind to think about what is good for Egypt, he saved a multitude of people and made Pharaoh the owner of almost all the lands of Egypt. So what a crude ungratefulness from this Pharaoh. And this is the picture of fallen man. Fallen man is ungrateful to the core. And this same ungratefulness was manifested toward our Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Think with me. The creator of all things accepted the humiliation of the incarnation. He came to his people. He did only good things, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. But what did he receive at the end? Crucifixion. Think also of the current situation of the church in Canadian society. Without the true Christian church and all her benefits, Canada would have been a frozen, uninviting wasteland. But today, the world and the state point the finger at God and accuse Christians of being the backward, hateful, begotten people who prevent others from experiencing paradise on earth. It's not all. There is another irony, the last one. Pharaoh and his advisors think that they are wise. Maybe from the short-sighted perspective of fallen men, they are wise. But from the divine perspective, they are very stupid. Like many God-haters today, Pharaoh does not realize that more people means more glory to God and more wealth. He fails to realize that there is that he's entering into a heavy boxing match against an invincible foe, El Shaddai, the Almighty himself. So the Almighty says, be fruitful and multiply. But Pharaoh says, be fruitless, die and decrease. The Almighty says, messianic redemption of the church for my glory, Pharaoh says, damnation of the messianic line. So who is going to win? God, the invincible champion, or puny Pharaoh, the devil's henchman? Of course, God will win. He always does. But let us dwell a bit longer on this opposition between God and Pharaoh. This contest is the same that started in the Garden of Eden. The contest between the seed of the woman and the dragon that we read also in Revelation 12. It repeatedly appears in scriptures because there is a natural enmity between Christ and the devil. The devil's main goal has always been to prevent the coming of Christ by exterminating the church. Remember, for example, when Amalek pounced upon God's people in the wilderness, when Haman, in the times of Esther, wanted to exterminate the entire church. In all those instances, the dragon was trying to eat the seed of the woman. The devil hates us simply because we are the rest of the woman's offspring, the body of Christ. Now, he can no longer persecute Christ because he is ascended to heaven, so he uses the world and our flesh to avenge himself on us, just as we read in Revelation 12. What did we read? We read that after the ascension of the baby, he followed the woman and started persecuting the rest of her offspring. And that war manifests itself 
even today, in several ways. For example, it manifests itself through the promotion of abortion or through the shaming of Christian families because they have many children. What's the goal? To decrease our number. But do not embrace those lies. Less people is not what will save the planet, but a more numerous and Christ-exalting church will. With this, we close our first point. What did we see? We saw that the church enslavement came from the ungratefulness and greediness of Pharaoh. Then we saw that behind Pharaoh was the devil. Finally, we saw that the Pharaoh's hatred toward God's people was a manifestation of the devil's hatred toward Christ and the church. Now, let us focus on the intensity of Pharaoh's hatred. How intense was it? That will be the object of our second point. The intensity of Pharaoh's persecution. Let us see. We read in verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So greedy Pharaoh and his advisors decided to persecute the church. And almost all the Egyptians were on board with it. How did they carry out the persecution? They appointed taskmasters over the people of God. So almost overnight, the people of God who were previously free now had slave drivers over them. The goal was to humiliate and make their life bitter with continuous back-breaking job. Imagine the situation with me for a while. Maybe some among God's people who were physically weak died, and some others, who were, even those who were physically strong, had their health ruined. Husbands and wives were separated, and people no longer had enough time to care for their own businesses. And as a result, poverty, extreme poverty among God's people was rampant. And here there is a sad irony. Pharaoh was draining the sweat and the blood of God's people to build Egypt's infrastructure. And some of those star cities, some of those star cities that they built were in fact also military fortresses. So Pharaoh compelled God's people to provide him with the supplies and the army he needed to enslave them. What was the goal of Pharaoh? The goal of Pharaoh was not only to break their backs, but also to break their spirit, to drive away from them any hope of freedom. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, the violent persecution did not have its expected effect. The more Egyptians persecuted the people of God, the more they increased. Not only did they increase, but our text say that they spread abroad, meaning that they started becoming numerous 
even outside of Goshen, which was the initial region. So this extraordinary spreading certainly did alarm the Egyptians. You can imagine that the anxiety of Pharaoh and his advisors reached the roof. The Egyptian population that had supported the persecution panicked when they realized that it was not reaching the expected goal. But instead of stopping and repenting, what did they do? They just hated God's people even more and increased the violence of their persecution. So they became as ruthless and violent as possible toward God's people. The Egyptians assigned them particularly to the process of brick-making. And even today, despite the technological advances that we know, brick-making from clay is still an extremely demanding job. Imagine God's people in Egypt making bricks. They had to prepare the clay, lift heavy loads of bricks, and endure the heat of the sun and also the heat of the kiln. To better understand, to have a visual of what I'm explaining, during the week, you can check documentaries on brick making in India and Pakistan, and you will, you will understand the suffering. You will better understand the suffering of God's people. So, the church situation was dire. God's people needed him to do something. You should know that God detests those who treat his image bearers in this way. Even when those people are pharaohs, despite all their power and authority. Christ has bought us body and soul, both in life and in death with his precious blood. So we belong to Christ. We do not belong to Pharaoh. What Pharaoh was doing was an accursed, blatant usurpation of authority. In acting that way, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were imitating their father, the devil. Satan is the father of all those who usurp or subvert the authority of Christ over the church. All governments are authority structures which want the church to worship in a manner contrary to God's word or which want to take the authority of the church in their own hands, set themselves on the path of Pharaoh, the path of the Antichrist, the path of the devil. As church, we must resist such people or such usurpation because we belong to Christ alone. We understand that we cannot have two masters. Either we serve Christ or we serve the devil. And all opposition to the lordship of Christ is therefore diabolical. And such opposition can only result in another slavery, a mortal one, slavery to the devil. So at the personal level too, be certain if you refuse to be a slave of Christ, you will be a slave of the devil. But let us not fool ourselves. 
The devil's slavery does not always manifest, manifest itself with violence and gruesome exploitation and back-breaking labor. The devil can also bind us in golden chains, such as entertainment, prosperity, great ease of lives, and all the cravings and addictions that come with it. In brief, anything that turns us away from the true worship of God can be an instrument of the devil to enslave us. So how intense was the persecution? It was extremely cruel. Pharaoh wanted to break the spirit of God's people, but the persecution did not achieve its goal. Why did it not achieve its goal? The answer is the object of our third point. God's blessing in the persecution. Why did Pharaoh's persecution fail? It failed because of God's blessing. Let us read together verse 12. In verse 12 we read, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Notice the parallelism here between the persecution's intensity and the church's growth. God was growing the Israelite population to the extent of the persecution. More persecution meant more people. Notice also the echoes of be fruitful and multiply of Genesis. In the word multiply, uh, uh, please notice uh, that echo in the word multiplied and spread abroad. To better see the echo, let us read, please, Genesis 28, verse 14. Genesis 28, verse 14. We read there, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So spreading abroad in all the directions meaning, means fill the entire earth. And that's what was happening here in Egypt. Despite the persecution, the Israelites were spreading abroad. They were accomplishing, um, uh, they were accomplishing the commands of God to increase and multiply. And at the same time, God had started to fulfill in them the patriarchal promises that we have just read. And because God was working in them, no one, be he the mightiest man on earth, or Satan himself could stop him. God was then intervening supernaturally to bring forth the Messiah and bless his church. Pharaoh did not incorporate God's reaction in his plan. Let us face it. Pharaoh was not stupid. Intellectually speaking, the plan was good enough to cause a progressive decrease in God's people. Separating families, 
making people work to death, making life bitter, all those things in normal circumstances without miraculous intervention decrease populations. But here, God, the Almighty, could not allow Pharaoh to challenge his plan successfully. So for the glory of his name and to honor the promises that he made to the patriarch, Jacob, for example, in Genesis 28, 14, God was blessing his church. He was blessing his church by multiplying them. But the blessing of God here does not mean that the situation was pleasant for the Israelites. You could not have found an Israelite saying, oh, this slavery is good because God is multiplying us. No. But any Israelite who had the eyes of faith would have seen that there is hope, that God will not allow the Egyptians to extinguish the hope of God's people to reach a promised land and to receive one day a Messiah. So what do we see in redemptive history? We see the same pattern over and over again. We see God increasing his church through persecution. Do you remember what happened in the book of Acts after Pentecost? What happened? The church started growing. Then the Jewish religious establishment started persecuting the church and dispersing the people. So those persecuted Christians fled everywhere. And while fleeing, they evangelized. And what happened as a result? The church started mushrooming in many areas outside of Jerusalem and Judea. And the Great Commission reached a higher level. Think also of what happened in Europe after the Reformation. Many Christians were persecuted in Europe. And as a result, they fled to come to the New World, to North America. And thus, for many decades, the church in North America was the most vibrant church in the world. Most importantly, this pattern, or this pattern also happened at the cross. At the cross, the rulers of this world and the devil thought that they were winning. But to their great dismay, Christ was triumphing over them, humiliating them publicly and canceling the ordinance of condemnation that stood against us. Is that not great? Our God is glorious. So know for sure that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. God is neither sleeping nor slumbering. He looks from heaven and laughs to scorn those who plot evil against his people. There is a splendid future for God's people. So remember this truth when you meditate on the church's future. Remember it also when you suffer for Christ's sake, when people hate you and seek to destroy you simply because you are a Christian, when your flesh, the devil, and the system of this world tempt you, and even when you are sick, simply because you, you are still living in this present Egypt. Remember that the same God who used persecution to bless his people in Egypt will use your sufferings to strengthen your faith, to make you more heavenly-minded, and to give you a greater hope. Just as it is written, and if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And again, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen. <laughs>